Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we open Your Word that You would give us understanding. Father, what we know not, we pray that You would teach us, and what we are not, we pray that You would make us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that You would strengthen us and You would encourage us as we study these churches who were under severe persecution and tribulation. Lord, that we would learn from their their perseverance. But Lord, we would also learn from their the rebukes that you gave to them in regards to false teaching, false doctrine. Father, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful this morning to your word. I pray, God, that you would, uh, you would be glorified in all that we do and say. Amen. Well, we moved down the coast or southeast of Pergamum. If you look on a, I thought about getting it or having a map printed out, but if you look on uh, a map and you find modern-day Turkey, um, some of these churches were on the coast. As a matter of fact, Patmos was the isle that John wrote this from was off of the isle or off of the mainland of Turkey. And then you can see, uh, you probably have them in the back of your Bible, you can find Ephesus and Smyrna and uh, Laodicea and Pergamum and all, those, all the, the uh, cities. Um, some of those cities are still in existence today. Their, number, their, their name has changed. Uh, some of them no longer exist. But you get an idea of where we're at. And that, again, is modern-day uh, what we call Turkey. And so if you look in that, at that map and you find um, Pergamum, you'll look a little bit to the southeast of that, uh, and you'll find a, a city that is called Thyatira. Uh, this is the smallest of the churches uh, that has received a letter, and yet it is the longest letter and arguably the harshest criticism um, warning and the promise of judgment should they not repent. They, they get a letter that seems to be almost overbearing, um, a little bit more stern than the other, um, than the other letters are. Now, a question that comes up is, what is the biggest threat to a gospel church? You don't have to answer out loud, but maybe in your mind, answer, answer or ask, the, ask yourself the question, what is the biggest threat to Valley View Baptist Church right now? Certainly not persecution because we're meeting openly, right? Well, what would be the biggest threat? It would be an, undiscer- an undiscerning pastor and undiscerning people. It would be a pastor and a group of people that could not discern what is right, true, and good doctrine from what is do- doctrine that is not good and right. People who lack discernment, whether they be pastors or pew-sitters, are those who are unskillful in the Word. Matter of fact, a a requirement for a pastor is that he not be a novice, that he not be a new Christian. And and I would go a step further and say that he not be a novice in handling the Word of God. That that he be someone, as as the the, uh, qualification that gets often overlooked, is apt to teach. He has the ability to open the Scripture and to explain the Scripture. And that's a pastor that gives attention to doctrine. You don't hear that much. A lot of, a lot of pastors are being vague today and, and it's, it's evidenced in, in the, the size of churches that they're building. And they're not even really getting in specific about doctrine, false teaching, whether it be true or not. But it's a pastor who's unskillful in the Word or people who's unskillful in the Word. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter four, uh, 5, verse 14 when we covered that, that these people who are unskillful in the, in the, in the Word don't understand what is right and what is true. Because they haven't studied. Now, that, that's not to say that someone's ignorant or stupid or, or 
or whatever we want to describe them, it's to simply say that maybe they don't know because they don't study the, the Word of God. You know, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of us have probably gone through reading programs in the Bible that we want to read the Bible through in a year. And some of you may, be do, may do that even now, and that's honorable. But how do we gain knowledge? It's not just by reading a book, right? It's by giving ourselves to the Scripture, to the study of Scripture, to the meditation of Scripture. Not just to read it, but to read it with the intention of knowing it. So these people don't understand sound doctrine for this reason. And I would even go a step further to say that they don't understand sound doctrine because they don't believe sound doctrine to really be essential to the life of a Christian and even further, to the life of the church. I mean, our, our doctrine, what we teach is essential. You know how I know that? Because we have a Baptist faith and message that lays out some fundamentals of the faith of some things that we need to believe. Now, it's not the Baptists that are telling us what we believe. Those things come from Scripture, but we have them in, in a way that we can read and we can understand, and there's Scripture proofs that go along with that. Now, if, if we believe that, if we believe doctrine to be true, then we will give attendance to it when we hear false teaching in the church. And this one may even lead to ask us, and it may seem like an odd question at this point, is what is the most heinous of all sins? And I know what most of you are thinking. Well, pastor, sin sin. God doesn't look at sin differently. God sees all sin the same. While that may be true in part, I would submit to you this morning that there is a sin that God hates and even calls it an abomination and even likens it, this sin, to adultery. Now, all sin is not the same in this sense that there's varying consequences for sin. For instance, if some young person decided they were going to just go sleep with as many people as they possibly could, the consequence of that sin would be what? Some kind of sexually transmitted disease, right? Or if someone decided, hey, I want as much money as I can possibly get and I'm going to go rob every bank I can. What's going to happen? They're going to end up in jail or end up shot. So all sin does not have the same consequence. And what is the sin I'm talking about? I'm talking about false teaching. That is idolatry that leads to idolatry that God likens to adultery. You see, it does matter what we believe. It does matter what we teach because God has told us this. God is a covenantal God. Why, why is idolatry likened to adultery? You, you look in the Old Testament and you see that all over the place where God talks about uh, one place it says that Israel has gone a whoring after other gods. What does that mean? They went and chased and made covenant with other gods. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah or I'm sorry, Hosea. Hosea was a what's called a minor prophet. He was given a command to marry a prostitute. And the purpose, and, and what you see as you read through that book, she, she married him and then she would leave him. She would go with other men and she would come back and then she would go to other men, come back and go. What was God trying to teach Israel? That that was a state of Israel, that they had prostituted herself or, or themselves to these other gods. And folks, that's in the church today. It, it's evident in the church today. But God uses this imagery of a covenant marriage relationship. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5 that men are to love their wives as Christ 
has loved the church. There's a sacrificial love that is required of us men. The second reason God hates idolatry is He alone is worthy of praise. And by the way, false doctrine leads to pagan idolatry. It leads to uh, um, um, immorality and things of that nature. God alone is worthy of praise and adoration, worship, and He alone deserves our undivided attention. That's why when we come to gather as the people of God that we ought to be praying, God, help me to not think of other things when I come in here. And as we'll see, we'll see that God knows even now where your mind and your thoughts are. He knows that if are your thoughts here listening to the Word of God with the intent of obeying God's Word. He knows if you're here just to, just to get a pat on the back or, or if you're here just to try to make an appearance. God knows not only what we are doing, but He knows the motives of those things that we are doing. You see, idolatry keeps us from serving God. It keeps us from serving God rightly. It keeps us from fellowship with God. It keeps us from total and complete devotion to God. It keeps us from gratitude towards God for His unspeakable gifts, in particular, saving grace. You say, Brother Brian, I don't have idols in my house. We don't have idols in this church. But we do have idols. We have idols that we set and we worship. We may not say that we worship. We may not have this, this formal worship service where we worship those things. But we worship them. We, we put those things above what we, how we view God. We put those things as greater in affection than our affection for God. Our text today shows us what happens when we become mesmerized by the foolish things of this world. The problem in the church here was just like these other churches. They compromised. And the title of this is The Corrupt Church. They were doing the right things. Hear me, they were doing the right things, but they were believing the wrong things that led them, some of them in the church, to practice wrong things as well. So notice with me in verse 18. <clears throat> and unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who have his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Again, we have the introduction that is relevant to the situation that was, uh, that was there in Thyatira. Now, the, 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 things that, the, the attributes that we see about Jesus, I said, uh, relate to particular uh, things that are going on in the church, but they also relate to particular aspects of the city. Thyatira was known as basically a hub of, of where uh, bronze or brass um, was, uh, was, went through its process of purification. But in this relevant introduction, he again addresses the pastor. The pastor, the messenger, is the chief guardian of truth. If a pastor is called a shepherd and shepherd guard sheep, my primary duty is to guard against, one of my primary duties is to guard against false teaching, false belief, false practice in my own life as well as the life of the church. The pastor is the exposer of falsehood, the chief discerner, teacher of the truth, and shepherd of the flock. 
If the pastor does not have discernment, then he can't guard the church against false doctrine. I love the passage in Acts chapter 4 or chapter 6 where there was this issue that arose in the church over the Hellenistic Jew widows that were not being cared for. And so they go to the pastors and they said, we need help. We need these things are being neglected. And the pastors put it back on the church and they appointed deacons for the daily ministerial care in that sense of the church. And there's, the, the thing I love about that passage is that the apostles said, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You see, if the Word is not primary in the pastor's life, if the Word is not primary in the life of the church, then we will allow any false belief and any false practice in under the guise of, oh well, they believe in God. And folks, that's not what we see in Scripture. I understand that God is a jealous God. God is a God that He has laid out the way He wants things done. We see this relevant title that is given to Jesus, the Son of God, the begotten of the Father. That doesn't mean that He had a time where He came into being. Now, we know about His incarnation, that He, he, he came in, in, in the flesh as that child, that she was conceived of the Holy Ghost, had a child. Yes, that was His physical um, beginning, but He was always with the Father. He was always with the Holy Spirit. He has eternally existed as the Father and the Spirit have. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. What, what we think God to be in our mind as God is a Spirit, Jesus Christ is the physical expression of that. He's the firstborn. That is the preeminent. Firstborn does not mean that He had a beginning. It simply means His superiority or His preeminency. He is the preeminent one over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. You see, at creation, it wasn't just God the Father that was there by Himself. There is evidence of the Trinity that we see in creation. But nonetheless, He, he gives this title as He is the Son of God. But He's not only the Son of God, He is the chief examiner of the heart of men. I said a moment ago that He knows the thoughts that you're having right now. He knows what's going on in that brain of yours right now, whether you are intently listening to the preaching of God's Word, whether you are intently listening to God's Word that you may grow in your faith, that you may know how you must obey, or are you saying, boy, I'll be glad when it's over with. I'll be glad when I can get out of here and I can go eat lunch. Or I can be glad when I can get out of here and I can just go do what I want to do. Listen to John 2, verse 23 through 25. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. I asked the Sunday school class this, is, believe, is seeing actually believing? And the answer is no. Just because we see something doesn't mean that we necessarily are, are going to believe it. And, and believing, what we're talking about is faith. We're, we're talking about trust in Christ. But they believed. Why? Because they saw the things that He'd done. Now, they didn't believe Jesus for who He was, but they believed Him for what He was doing. They were following Him for what He was doing. Verse 24, But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. 
Jesus did not commit this gospel message that He gives His disciples a commission to proclaim. He's not going to entrust that gospel message with unbelievers. He's not going to entrust that gospel message with people who don't know what faith and grace are. He's not going to entrust that gospel message to people who would take it and twist it. But He goes on to say in verse 25, He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Jesus Christ had no need for someone to testify to the motives and intents of man. You know why? Because He sees to the heart. He sees to our inner being. One of the commentators had this to say about this text. Note the contrast between many trusted and He was not trusting Himself to them. Many trusted, many believed, many acknowledged, but Jesus Christ did not entrust Himself to them. Jesus did not look upon all those individuals as being true believers to whom His cause could be entrusted. His cause was the proclamation of the gospel. The reason why He did not do this was because He knew all men. He knew just what was in the heart of anyone with whom He would come in contact. This had become amazingly clear when the Lord saw Simon for the first time and when he first met Nathaniel. You remember what he said about Nathaniel when he called him to follow him? An Israelite in whom, indeed in whom is no guile. Guile has to do with bitterness and, and, and strife. We go on to see the character of Christ, the omniscient one, as he describes their sin in detail. We'll see here in a moment. Does it ever concern you that God sees and knows every thought and the intentions of your heart? Look, here's a reality for, for, for every one of us. is We sin far more in our mind and in our heart than we ever do in our body. What I mean by that is you cannot see the thoughts that I have towards you. I cannot see the thoughts that you have towards me. Right? Those are things that, that we sometimes keep to ourselves. But you can't see the ill will I may have towards you. Like we see someone who murders someone on the street. He knows every thought that you have before you have that thought. You want to talk about an all-knowing, omniscient, sovereign God? He knows what I'm going to say before I get it out of my mouth here in the next few moments. I mean, what an amazing God we have. And He knows the intent of, what, of what's behind what I'm going to say. Just as He knows your thoughts and your motives of why you do what you do. Why are you here this morning? He knows the thoughts. He knows your intent. And there is divine anger displayed over the prostitution of His people. You say, well, Pastor, that's, that's some strong language. Folks, that's exactly what He is likening this stuff to. Because He likens it one to Jezebel. You know who Jezebel is. We'll get into that in a moment. False, doc, false teachers are guilty of enticing the bride of Christ to essentially sleep with another. They're guilty. The, the false teachers are guilty for enticing the bride of Christ to take to them someone else. Just as someone would be guilty of in, in, enticing someone in a marriage relationship to sleep with another person. Folks, do you see the language that is being used here? How seriously God views that? As He views the covenant of marriage, that one man, one woman come together, one flesh, my body's not mine, Tiffany's body's not hers, but, but that we are one. 
And for me to go outside of the bonds of that marriage doesn't just disqualify me from ministry. It breaks the covenant that God established in the Old Testament. And if God is a covenantal God, then when we begin to worship and we begin to pursue other interests that are not aligned with Scripture to the point that we worship those things, then guess what? You've cheated on your spouse. You have gone outside of the covenant. These false teachers are guilty of enticing the bride of Christ. One, by teaching false doctrine. Let me tell you, false doctrine is not always overt. It's always, often, it's hidden. But that false teaching would always also lead them away from the truth. Now, I want to bring to your attention, we're not going to go back and look at it, but if you've read this, if you've just even read through it as we've read on Sunday morning to... uh, to look at the text, you will notice something that has taken place. In particular, in these last two letters, that false doctrine leads to immoral pagan practice. And it is likened to adultery. Folks, God is a jealous God and has every right to be jealous. He has every right to desire that we worship Him and Him alone. He has every right... To, to demand that we give all of our attention to Him. He has every right to demand that we give all of our affection to Him. See, false doctrine leads you away from God. It will never lead you to a closer relationship with God. Notice secondly, beginning in verse 19, the... You have in your your bulletin on the outline the penetrating evaluation or the commendation. Notice what he says. I know thy works. Those those works are those things that spring forth from faith. We we see in Ephesians 2.10 that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That, That are those things that are evident of our faith that we profess. I know thy works and charity and service and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, he says it again, and the last to be more than the first. Folks, Jesus is thoroughly and intimately acquainted with the labors of love towards their neighbors. He is intimately acquainted with those things that you do in secret to your, for, for your neighbor. Those uh, expressions of genuine Christian love. You don't have to go on the street corner and sound a horn and say, hey, I've done such and such for so and so. Hey, I bought a hamburger for the homeless people that was on the street. We don't have to do that. Uh, matter of fact, we don't have to stand in the back and as we're dropping our tithe check in the place saying, hey, I'm giving dot, dot, dot amount of money. We don't have to do that. Why? Because God knows. And in that, God knows the sacrifice that you gave for your giving. Love and faith are internal qualities that come to expression in the external qualities of service and endurance. Let me say that they don't naturally abide in an unregenerate man. For you to possess these qualities, you must have been born again by the Spirit of God. In other words, from God-given faith proceed acts of love. These things that we do that are good works, they're not done 
to gain favor with God. They're not done to gain favor with our man, but they are done as expressions of faith that God has given to us. This kindness, this benevolence, as well as steadfast, faithful service to God are expressions of our faith that God has granted to us. The summary of the law is love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said that the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your being, essentially. Everything that is within you, love God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Look, we don't need self-esteem. Every every person in here, you, you love yourself. You know how it's evidenced? You took the time to get ready to come to church this morning, right? If, if something needed ironing, you ironed it. If, if, if you needed a shower this morning, you took a shower, right? You put on deodorant, put on, maybe put on some cologne. You, you took some time to get ready to come here. So no one needs to tell you, hey, you need to love yourself more. That, that's, just, that's, that's just baloney. But what we do need to do is love our neighbor as we would care for ourselves. As we would get our, give ourselves the things that we need to, 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 to care for ourselves, we need to love our neighbor. Notice what Romans 13 verse 9 has to say. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. By the way, you want to know how you can love your neighbor? Don't lust after their spouse. Don't look upon a husband or a wife with lust in your heart desiring to have them. You shall not murder. You want to love your neighbor? Don't say evil things against them. Don't think evil thoughts against them. That's equivalent to murder. You shall not steal. Be honest in our dealings. In particular, you, th- you want to think about it this way. When, 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 uh, and this is what, what the way I, uh, as I go to work, if I'm not being honest with the work that I'm doing, the inspections that I have to do in my time at that job, guess what I'm doing? I'm stealing. You shall not bear false witness. Don't lie about people. Don't say things that are untrue about people. That's hating your neighbor. That's not loving your neighbor. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's why this is important. Because these people were being persecuted for their public proclamation of the gospel in the public square and they refused to retaliate by saying things to their people, to, to, the, to their neighbors. James refers to this as the royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. It, you, 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 will, you say you're a Christian? How do you love your neighbor? You cannot say I love God without loving my neighbor. These works of benevolence. Love. By the way, love is an action word. Love is not some emotional, passive word. Love is an action word. And it's, it's evidence in the marriage covenant that I would do things for my wife that are driven by my love for her and my desire to please God. And vice versa. Works of benevolence. Love. And so for us as Christians, love causes us to look on people with compassion and pity and help them in their state. Works of benevolence, love, faith, the evidence of faith, trust in God no matter what the situation may be, service, perseverance, continual growth, public proclamation of the gospel. These are all good works that we have been created in Christ 
Jesus. These Christians visibly demonstrated love toward their neighbor and faith and trust in God. They didn't have to wear a t-shirt that said, child of the king or whatever the case may be. They displayed their love for God by their actions. How often do we say actions speak louder than words? I I mean, really and truly, if someone's going to display love towards you, they're going to do something for you. It may be, hey, go check on my dog. Could you check on my dog while I'm gone? Could you make sure he has food? You say, well, that's not a very big deal. No, it's not, but it's a display of love. Why? Because as a Christian, we ought to genuinely want to help those in particular that we are in covenant relationship with. The idea of perseverance is that we remain faithful in our service and devotion to God no matter what the trial may be. You want to know what real faith looks like? Do you persevere in trial? Have you persevered in extreme trial? Look, this last year and a half has been an extreme trial for many of us. How has our faith been portrayed through that? Have we just trusted in God no matter what? Or are we willing to trust in some fallible government? And folks, that's what it's going to boil down to in the end. As as time goes on and, and things get closer and closer to the end, we're going to have to trust the living God, the thrice holy God, that He will care for us and will protect us in this time. Their persecution was simple. The reason why was because they they displayed their faith and love towards others and they proclaimed the gospel in the public square. They were not ashamed of preaching the gospel to their neighbor. Now, this was really, I've mentioned this before, this really gets particular because all of the trade guilds in this area that, that there were particular trade guilds and you had to say Caesar is Lord and you had to eat these meats that was offered to idols and, and what this Jezebel was teaching was, hey, that's okay. You still believe in God. That's okay to do that. Your family needs to be taken care of. Now in relation to that, let's just say we were going to go to the local market here. You had to go in and buy some things and there's someone standing at the door that says, before you go in, you need to say Caesar is Lord. What would you do? If you were going to conduct business with, with anyone, if you're going to sell cows or, or wheat or whatever the case may be, and they said, before we purchase this, you are going to have to say, Caesar is Lord, what would you do? So it's getting real personal for us. If I showed up at work on Tuesday morning and, they, and, and one of the owners met me and said, Brian, you can't do that stuff anymore. You, you can't preach the gospel. Matter of fact, you need to bend the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. What am I going to do? We can't give lip service to faith without displaying genuine faith. And by the way, genuine faith will overcome. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we do everything right. But ultimately, it will overcome. It goes on to say that their last works were greater than their first works. This, as I said a moment ago, was their moving on to perfection. Their growing in spiritual maturity. They kept preaching the gospel. They kept proclaiming the gospel in the midst of this persecution. And it seemed like the letter would stop right there. Like, man, that would be great they were doing that. But verse verse 20. 
Look what he says. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. In other words, I'm glad you're, you're displaying your faith. I'm glad you're proclaiming the gospel. I'm glad you're, you're, you're showing uh, love for your neighbor and your love for God. But, I've got some things against you. Notice what he says. Because thou sufferest, that word sufferest means to allow that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Here was the issue. Not only the toleration of false teaching, not only the toleration of false doctrine, but the permission or the permissive attitude to practice these pagan rituals or these pagan practices. Like our, our works of love and display of faith, perseverance and service to God do not outweigh our neglect of discerning false teaching infiltrating our church. That ought to be what we are all listening for. Uh, look, when I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, I, there's, I'm probably going to say some wrong things. You speak in public enough, you're going to say something that inadvertently or whatever the case may be. But what you need to be aware of is are these false teachings just consistently throughout the teaching. You, you need to be aware, you need to have your ear keen towards what's being said. Now, you also need to be aware of what the Scripture is saying. Are you immersed in the Word of God? Are you studying the Word of God? Now real quick, let me, let's see who this woman Jezebel is. The church at Ephesus hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember we talked about Baal and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? It was a permissive practice of, of, of immorality and pagan, uh, pagan practice. And then uh, the church at Pergamum allowed the practice of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So you, you had the church at Ephesus that hated that doctrine, that, that hated it. And remember, the, the church at Ephesus had, had just kind of circled the wagons and had rallied around doctrinal purity. They wanted to remain doctrinally pure in the church, but yet they had left their first love of ultimately evangelism, uh, of preaching the gospel in the public. And so... While they rallied the, the wagons, they had forsaken their first love. And then we see um, Pergamum that, that just allowed this. They allowed the practice of the doctrine. And the church at Thyatira, they tolerated the teaching and allowed the practice of this false religion or false teaching. Now the woman that is being compared here was... Exactly who you think you might, she might be if you have been brought up in church. It's Jezebel, King Ahab's wife. And we know what a wicked woman she was. She brought in the worship of Baal. She brought in a temple where Baal could be worshipped and where his prophets could do uh, their, their activities and things. And then, on Mount Carmel, does that sound familiar? Elijah and those 250 prophets of Baal... They erected uh, two altars, I believe it was, and they began to cry and moan and scrape and, and calling out to Baal that he would send fire down to consume that, that sacrifice. And Elijah began to mock them, laugh at them, tease them. Their God would not hear them. And then when it come his turn, what happened? He dumped 12 water pots of water on that altar. 
dug a trench around it so it could hold water. And they just, I mean, they just poured the water. And those water pots were not like little bitty two, three-gallon buckets. When we were talking pretty big. They poured it, soaked it. And what did he do? He called fire down from the living God that not only consumed the water around the, the altar, but it consumed the sacrifice as well. And then Elijah tucked his tail between his legs and took off for a cave. Man, you have a victory like that and you run from a woman. A woman that just was slapped with those, those false teachers or those false prophets' defeat. Now we don't know exactly who the woman was in this church, but it compares her to that woman in Israel's history. She, however, was most likely a prominent woman in the church. She, I don't know, may have been one of the elders' wives. She may have been a deacon's wife. She may have been a prominent couple, whoever it may be. We're not sure. But she was also, she also had the power to deceive. Like the seductress Jezebel in the Old Testament, she had the same power to deceive. She was also a smooth talker. Look, false teachers are, are, I said a moment ago, are never blatantly overt. They're never open with their false teaching. Some are, but some are not. It's more inconspicuous. Now, some of the notes I'm using for this sermon, I used about five years ago. And I've gone in and added some stuff that I've seen. But one thing I did not change. I've got in parentheses talking about this woman Jezebel. Is a Southern Baptist darling teacher. She's known and loved by millions. You probably know who I'm talking about. Beth Moore. She's a false teacher. She's a false teacher, number one, because she's not teaching the Scripture as it should be taught. And number two, and probably most importantly, she has now left the Southern Baptist Convention because she's not allowed to stand up on Sunday morning and preach to a mixed congregation. Now, I don't care if it's on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. A woman is not to usurp authority or teach a man. That's the Bible. That's not Brian being chauvinistic. That's not Brian being misogynistic. That's not Brian being a hater of women. That is the Word of God, and He has done that. He has done that. So, don't shoot the messenger. Look for the one that sent the message. But she was a false teacher, and they were allowing this to happen. They were allowing this to take place. You see the issue here is that, number one, they started off, they must have just said, well, she's, 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 got, you know, she's a good teacher, she's got a good voice, yada, 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 we'll just let her teach. And it morphed into what it was. Her instruction was deceptive. It was deceiving. Kind of like much of our teaching today doesn't focus on the Christ of the Bible, it's focused on being a better you. Being a better version of who you are. We make the Bible about us and it's about Jesus. She was, her instruction was deceptive. She was a self-proclaimed prophet. She said that she was a prophet. She said that she was a teacher or a pastor. Or I think they call them pastrixes or whatever that is. But 1 Timothy 3 gives us the qualifications of a pastor. Husband of one wife, not a brawler, uh, not given to wine, able to teach. 
God has set these things. Persuaded those in the church to engage in illicit behavior. Say, it's okay. There's a, a teaching out there right now called hypergrace, I think is what it's called. Y'all familiar with Joseph Prince? Anybody know who Joseph Prince is? He teaches hypergrace. Here's what hypergrace is. That you can do anything you want to do as a Christian and not suffer any kind of judgment for that. Now, I don't want to be legalistic in what I say, but I'll say what Paul said in Romans 8. Matter of fact, let's look at it because I'm going to misquote it. Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin. That's not the right verse. But nonetheless, it talks about, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. And, And it's not just a no, it's an absolutely not. It's a God forbid... No, we should not continue in, 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 in sin that grace would superabound. Grace saves us from not only the power of sin, but the penalty of sin. And it saves us from really what would be, we would call the practice of sin. That is, that if, if a man was a thief before he came to faith in Christ, he should not be a thief afterward. And so he is fighting that sin. And as we confess our sin, we see uh, uh, more and more sin that we need to confess. The intentions of false teachers is to bring attention to themselves. It's always about me. It's always about the the, the teacher. They lead others away from the truth and ultimately lead them away from God. And you got to ask yourself, you pick out any teacher, any famous teacher on TV or the internet or whatever, ask this question, is is their teaching causing me to have a higher view of who God is or are they causing me to come away from God? And I would tell you that any teacher that focuses on being a better you is not leading you closer to God. They're not bringing you to the cross. They're bringing you to yourself. Now, thirdly, we see their, their, their exhortation. It's to hold fast. Let's skip down a few verses back in, in Revelation chapter 2. And I'm skipping some stuff, but we'll cover it this evening if, if, if you come for our study and prayer time. That there's punishment that He gives for her not repenting of her sin there in verse 22 and verse 23. Promises of of future judgment. But then in verse 24. So what was going on in that church? You had some that had caved into that doctrine. You had some that were standing fast. Notice what He says, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Verse 25, But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. In other words, to those who have not gone the way of the false teacher, to those who who are continuing to display their faith by their good works and their love and their perseverance, hold the line. Hold fast to what you are doing. Keep 
on doing that. Hold fast to that. And so to hold fast, though, for us, we need to read ourselves, read the word. We need to immerse ourselves in the word that we may have our, our, our hearts um, encouraged, that we may be sure of what we believe. Folks, though, the pastors are the primary guardians of truth. Each of us has a responsibility to guard against falsehood. While I can control what comes in and out of the church by way of this pulpit of, allow, of who comes through to preach, what I cannot control is what comes into your home via the internet, via TV. I cannot control that. So you must be aware of the false teachers. You must be aware of the false teaching. You must know the Scripture so that you can uh, uh, use that as the standard by what these people bring into your home. It is the Word that dispels error. And then lastly, notice in verse, uh, 20, verse 26, And he that overcometh, <clears throat> he that overcometh and keepeth my works into the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. Shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my Lord? And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say unto the churches. Verse 26 and 27 are direct quotes from Psalm 2 verse 7 if you want to read that later on. But Christ promises that if the readers persevere, He will grant them a share in the Messianic kingdom that is prophesied in Psalms 2. Now here's what that means. For the one who professes to know Christ, for the one who professes to be in relationship with Christ, our faith, though it is seen through our good works, is seen also through our perseverance. And the perseverance to the very end, we will see the kingdom in its fulfillment when Jesus returns. So church, remain faithful. Remain faithful. If you have not been faithful in displaying your love for God and your love for your neighbor, repent. There's time to repent. May we be a church that stands fast on the truth of God's Word and stands firm in what He has given for us to do. Let's pray.